Welcome to The Link Online. And here we are once again in our new studio. We've come up in the world. We were used to be in the basement, but now we're on the first floor. And we have all kinds of gadgets to play with. Look, I have this to play with. I don't know what it does, but it's here. And it's probably expensive, so I shouldn't play with it. We have the regular team with us today, and they are... Lynn Desjardins. Hi. And he is... Levon Sevons. Hi. And, and she is... Marie-Claude Simard. And in the control room... The smiling and ever-talented Alex Leclerc. Big wave from Alex. There he is. <laughs> he wasn't expecting that. All right, coming up on the show today, Levon, let's start with you. Well, Canada announced that it's creating the post of an ombudsman to investigate the conduct of Canadian companies operating abroad. And I'll speak with a Canadian NGO that's been fighting for this for years. Lynn? I'll tell you about Human Rights Watch, which uh, issued its annual report and flagged abuses around the world, but it says fighting back works. And I'll have a story about the Indigenous Affairs, well, with an Indigenous Affairs expert, actually, who gives her opinion of the ongoing troubles with the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Indigenous women and girls. And we'll have those stories and some of your comments coming up on this edition of The Link Online. All right, we're going to start out with you, Lynn, and this uh, Human Rights Watch annual report. They've issued uh, 90 countries included in this. Uh, of course, the United States is among them, where U.S. President Donald Trump is cited for, among other things, anti-immigrant uh, stance, uh, racially divisive uh, comments, anti-news media rhetoric. And <laughs> you covered this. I did, Mark. And the report raises concerns about egregious human rights, rise of authoritarian populist regimes in Europe. But it also has a message of hope. And in fact, in its very title, it it's, uh, says, Fighting for Rights Succeeds. So for details, I spoke with Emma Daly. She's the Communications Director at Human Rights Watch. Well, I think what we're most concerned about are abusive populist leaders who are trying to gain power and extend their power by demonizing and scapegoating minorities and uh, ignoring human rights. And I think what was really interesting about the past year was that it showed the importance of pushing back against the threat posed by demagogues and their abusive policies. Can you expand on that? Tell us what's important here. If we look back a year ago, we just had Donald Trump win the U.S. presidency with a platform that was quite openly misogynistic and, and racist. And we also had the specter of Europe being possibly governed by far-right parties. So there was real concern that this um, wave of abusive populists would really sweep through the world. I think now what we've seen is something of a halt there. Uh, the election of Emmanuel Macron in France was important because he defeated the xenophobic National Front by very firmly rejecting their anti-human rights platforms and by standing up and saying, these are not the values of France, we will not accept that. And, you know, a large number of French voters agreed with him. In contrast, some other European politicians sort of tried to take the sting out of the far right by co-opting some of their policies and trying to attract some of their voters and offering a kind of far right light. And what happened then was actually that they mainstreamed those abusive policies and really more enabled the far right. So it's very important. One lesson is it's very important that politicians, mainstream politicians, actually stand up and speak out for human rights principles and denounce the xenophobic and abusive policies. Who else could be standing up? 
Well, what we've seen, it depends where you look, but in the U.S., for example, we've seen the courts play a very important role. Uh, Donald Trump hasn't been able to enact his travel ban yet. We've seen journalists um, doing some extraordinary reporting and really trying to return us to uh, a sort of a fact-based world. And, of course, a free press is really the, the foundation of a, of a democratic country. You, know, you need a free press to be able to hold those in power to account. Activists have been very important. And also, I think, ordinary people, you know, taking to the streets was effective, I think, in the U.S., where it limited some of Donald Trump's most uh, dangerous policies. But, you know, in Venezuela, people took to the streets in large numbers to protest against um, President Maduro's attempts really to destroy democracy there. We saw them in Hungary, in Poland. And in all those cases, we also saw governments and institutions speaking out. So in Latin America, for probably the first time, we've had other governments openly critical of Venezuela and the way that Maduro is behaving. We have the European Union telling Poland that it's not all right to undermine the independent judiciary and try and destroy the, the rule of law, uh, which it actually didn't do in Hungary. Um, the European Union is, tr is threatening Poland now with consequences for that behavior. But even in Hungary, the prime minister who tried to shut down a major European university simply because he doesn't like its liberal outlook was forced to shelve his plans because of the international outcry. So Emma Daly is the communications director at Human Rights Watch in Canada. And uh, the report details human rights situations in the more than 90 countries that were studied. You can actually go onto the website. I've put a link in there. And you can check different countries if you want to see what's going on. Uh, you know, they mention particularly Yemen, uh, the, the Myanmar, um, the Philippines, and so on. As for Canada, Human Rights Watch applauds Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's support of human rights and the fact that he calls himself a feminist. But the report says the Canadian government must do more for Indigenous communities, such as making sure that they have access to safe drinking water. Uh, Daly says, you know, in a country like Canada, it's kind of crazy that there isn't and there should be clean drinking water available everywhere. And, of course, that more should be done to counter the violence against Indigenous women. And I guess, Mark, you'll have something on that inquiry later. Yeah, that's coming up a little bit later on the show. The uh, inquiry, the National Inquiry into the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, uh, very troubled. Uh, it's been troubled since the beginning almost. And we'll have a, a look at that from some, a member from the Indigenous community. That's coming up a little bit later on the program. Well, I should have said it's coming up next on the program because it, we are going to talk about it now. In fact, it is the second year of this national inquiry into the issue of the high number of murdered and missing Indigenous women. Uh, many cases uh, are still unsolved, and the inquiry has been slowly making its way back and forth across the country, but it has been the source of ongoing criticism, ranging from its very slow start to treatment of witnesses and overall management of the inquiry. It's also seen an unusually high turnover of executive staff. The latest was the executive director who left after only four months. And many critics have said that this has yet again indicated that there are problems within the organization itself. Now, I spoke by Skype with Laurie Campbell about her thoughts. She is the director of Indigenous Initiatives 
at St. Paul's University College, which is affiliated with the University of Waterloo in Ontario. And in this excerpt of our Skype conversation, they asked if the fact that the police weren't part of the inquiry was also problematic. Yes, I think that is a significant problem. I mean, the families, of course, want to share their stories and uh, need to have an opportunity to share their stories. But I don't think they're just sharing them just to be heard. They're sharing them because there are still family members that are missing and they want them to be found. They want perpetrators of the victims to be held accountable. They also want other families to not have to go through through this. And, and they themselves do not want to have to go through this again. What, what do you think should be going on here, though? Because this inquiry has had criticism almost from the very outset. I think, um, I think moving forward, I, I believe it just really needs to be Indigenous, grassroots-based, informed. And although you know, some of the families that have uh, been at the hearings are, are feeling um, satisfied with uh, their experience of it, I think that's important to recognize that. But I think it's also important to recognize that the diversity of Indigenous peoples across this country, from East Coast to West Coast to North to South, is tremendous. And therefore, each hearing and uh, the way that it's been going about will have to change based on the individual and community needs uh, where the inquiry is headed. Now, a lot of Indigenous groups have, have been a part of this criticism of this inquiry, uh, calling it some pretty serious uh, names, you know, it's a f- farce and, and, and worse, perhaps. Can it do its job? I mean, should, should the director, should the head commissioner be relieved of her duties and uh, reset? What, what's your thoughts on this? I, I think that, uh, I, well, I think there's something significantly wrong in there and with so many people having left or been, been fired and many of which who I think are trusted community members and who have worked really hard within the inquiry to try and move it forward in the, and to meet the needs of the families. And so I think the trust from the community is certainly depreciating uh, when we see those people who are finally saying, look, I'm, I'm leaving due to personal reasons, and I think the personal reasons have more to do about the stress of recognizing that uh, they're not able to do it in the way that meets the needs of the families and the communities. And um, at this point, you know, there's very few people uh, that have been there since the start. And uh, yeah, so what is the leadership within it? Well, Laurie Campbell, what did you think when you heard about the report that the, one of the, the executive director who has just left said, the first priority is to protect the commissioners. Right. Uh, yeah, and that's very problematic. I mean, uh, you know, given given the context of the uh, inquiry and what uh, the families are, are, you know, hoping to come out of it, I think, you know, account um, transparency is uh, most important. And, I mean, that's not even an Indigenous uh philosophy or law or protocol. And, and so that's just indicative right there that it's not following the right Indigenous protocol. Because Indigenous protocol would be that, um, you know, that it's, it's nothing about that. What it's all about is meeting the needs of the community and the families, not about saving face. And yet a lot of people... And that's just an excerpt of uh, my conversation with Lori Campbell and her thoughts on the very troubled, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls inquiry. She is the director of Indigenous Initiatives at St. Paul's University College, which is affiliated with the University of Waterloo. And uh, the full Skype conversation is in the highlights section of our website. All right, let's take a look at some of the comments that you posted. And a reminder, you can post your thoughts and read comments of others to each story by going right to the very bottom of each story on the page. 
and the form is there to submit your comment. And starting us off today, a comment to a story that originally made national news, even prompting comments and phone calls from the Ontario Premier and the Canadian Prime Minister who spoke out about how this was a terrible case of Islamophobia and uh, something like a hate crime. And the story was, really scared, girl has hijab cut by stranger. But it turned out after the police investigated that the girl had made up the story, but the police were not going to press charges against the girl. And Janine Nahas commented. I I believe there should have been consequences like community service or fine because it sets a precedence for others to cry wolf as well. Under law, it is a criminal offense to mislead police. I think we should uh, underline that we're talking here about an 11-year-old girl. I thought she was 15. No, 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 no. No, No, she was 11 years old and uh, very self-possessed and went on camera and... Uh, but police say they reviewed uh, videos from surrounding areas and they could find no evidence at all that this actually happened. Has there been any word of, of why she might have done this? No, I, but no. I think the family has apologized. Yes, the, uh, the family has apologized. And I think the question here for me is why was the school so eager to put this story out without having checked it first and having given the police the opportunity to check the, the story and, you know, putting an 11-year-old and her 10-year-old brother on camera, on national TV, uh, was a decision that's being questioned now by a lot of people. Mind you, the mother was present. Yes. So presumably uh, the, there was permission from the mother. I, we know that in the province of Quebec, that, that kind of thing is probably less likely to happen because we have very strict laws protecting um, youth in this province. I'm not sure if Ontario has the same kind well, of Well, with laws. the mother there, of course, that gives the adult sort of a, sanction, sanction yeah. to it. Yeah. And they also, to be fair, we have to say that they had this hijab, which did have a 20-centimeter cut in it. And uh, I think there is also a certain amount of pressure felt by authorities to be sensitive to Muslim communities because we have in Canada seen attacks against Muslim communities, vandalism at mosques and so on. And I think there, there killings. is... Killings. And have... killings. We had the massacre last year, last year almost at this time. So I think there is a real effort uh, by authorities to acknowledge when, you know, there is something that goes wrong and when there is aggression against uh, Muslims. But well, we have uh, to also note that there have, been, 2020, there, right? have been, there have been vandalism and so on going on at Jewish synagogues as well at the same time. Yes. So this, there's a large... The, inc- the incidence of hate crimes in Canada against uh, minorities, the, the Jewish community, the Muslim community, the Sikhs, uh, has been going up um, in, uh, in this uh, last couple of years. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's a serious issue. But uh, I think maybe a lesson for the media as well to maybe uh, for us as journalists when we're confronted with stories like this. But you know, the problem is, though, is, uh, for the media is if you stop, uh, if you're me- media A, and you stop and say, we're going to investigate this, media B and C and D and E and F are jumping on the story. And let's face it, it's about money, right? Whether you like it or not, these stations have to get out with the story. There's a a financial pressure for them to do that. Except we are the public broadcaster and we don't have that same pressure. So we uh, arguably uh, should be more um, prepared to do due Theoretically. Absolutely. But that said, there's the 24 News Channel and numbers 
You know, how many clicks we get, how many people are watching these things are also, you know, even though we're the public broadcaster, we're publicly funded, we still have to justify ourselves to the government that, that we're relevant. So well, it's, it's, like, it's, like election, it's like election night, right? Who's going to be the first? I mean, it's a competition. Who's going to be a fir the first to say this party won or this leader won, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they, they, I mean, they even make that the news story. It, at 11 o'clock, uh, CBC announced X, Y, or Z yeah. is has won, you know, and, or CTV or somebody. So yeah. it's, it's, this, it's the pressure. We're, it's a delicate situation, yeah. I think, you know. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, we had a comment this week to a story of two weeks ago about a Saudi Arabia pressuring Canada over its stance on the Yemen war, and Ursula Wagner in Germany wrote this. Must say it sounds a bit ridiculous from Canada to call on Saudi Arabia to stop the war in Yemen. It is like giving a child a toy, but don't play with it. As long as all Western countries, with their such good values, allow their weapon factories to make big business with Saudi Arabia, there will be no change. I've just seen a report on German TV that really made me furious. Germany's attitude, officially having very strict laws where it is allowed to sell weapons to, doesn't at all interfere into our largest weapons company, Rheinmetall. They produce munitions in Italy that go directly to Saudi Arabia and are found again in Yemen. Another comment uh, came this week to a story of one year ago called Canada's Cyberbullying and Revenge Porn Law Applies to Adults Too. And Lynn M. commented. Finally, long overdue. Thank you to all the people involved in making this happen. Now, we had two stories from 11 months ago about computers and phones distracting students in class and a Toronto school that banned phones. OK wrote from England. Phones have no place in school. They have no genuine educational benefit. They only serve to distract and equip bullies with an additional tool to harass. The best thing my school's school leadership team did was to have an outright ban. If we see your phone, even in your pocket, anywhere on the school site, it is confiscated. You'll get it back at the end of the week. Hmm. On a story this week that voluntary salt reduction in processed food was only modest, Napo commented. To leave the reduction of sodium to the producers of food is like asking a wolf to take care of the chicken coop. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, last word, uh, well, not uh, second to last word this week goes to Peter Ashcroft regarding the story, Vancouver Summit urges no let-up in North Korea sanctions. And Peter wrote this. The North Korean rulers are using their own innocent people as hostages in this international power-hungry conflict. And finally, a comment about Toronto as the only non-U.S. city in the running for Amazon's new second headquarters. Uh, Trump tax wrote this. You're assuming that tech workers are attracted by the outdoors. Not all of them. I remember many from my days at uh, Virginia Tech where people were complaining about Blacksburg as a horrible place because it didn't have a nightclub. New York and Chicago have awesome nightlife. Do not be surprised by their appearance on their list. Now, you know, when I saw this story, I, I went back, because you wrote this story, <laughs> yeah. but there's nothing in this story that said Toronto was promoting outdoor life. Like, no, uh, no. And, I mean, to be fair, Toronto has a pretty good nightlife, too. And other wow. Canadian cities, such as Montreal, who had applied, uh, probably can boast a very good nightlife. Even better. Even, probably <laughs> even better. <laughs> well, actually, I was listening to uh, a competing radio station, and they were discussing this, and they had... Uh, the, the Montreal person who put the bid on uh, saying, you know, what did you do wrong? He said, well, I don't know. Everything's, you know, we did the best we could and so on and so forth. 
and then people would uh, apparently text into the station what they said was the real problem. Uh, I won't go into say what it was, but there were some pretty obvious. Well, I saw an article in the paper today that talked about uh, uh, the province of Quebec, where Montreal is, having some of the highest taxes in the Western world. That was one of the reasons. Yes. That was one of the reasons. Yes, indeed. All right. Uh, let's go on to another story coming up in just a second. The federal government is creating an independent watchdog to investigate the conduct of Canadian companies operating abroad. And, Levon, this is apparently the first of its kind in the world and something that several civil society groups and NGOs in Canada had lobbied successive governments for years to get on board with. Uh, You're absolutely right, Mark. The conduct of Canadian companies, particularly some mining companies operating in developing countries, had raised a lot of concerns over the years. For over a decade, Canadian NGOs had been lobbying uh, the federal government to come up with a mechanism to investigate allegations of human rights abuses committed by Canadian companies or companies associated with them um, overseas. And one of these NGOs is above ground. It works to make sure that Canadian companies operating overseas respect human rights. And for more on this announcement, I spoke with um, Karen Keenan, and she's the director of Above Ground. Well, I think it's an important development. Um, uh, It's an acknowledgement by the Canadian government that there are serious and widespread human rights problems associated with Canadian companies' operations overseas. Um, And I think as important... It's a recognition and acknowledgement by the government that it has a responsibility to do something about those human rights problems. Um, We haven't seen this um, from successive uh, governments in Canada uh, through the whole, you know, period that that people have been raising these issues about our our Canadian companies. More than a decade, people have been raising these issues and, and pushing for policy reforms here in Canada. We haven't seen an acknowledgement like this before. So I think it's it's an important development in that respect. What do you think will change now that uh, Canada will have an ombudsman, uh, we're hoping, shortly? Well, I think uh, what I hope will happen is, um, until now, there hasn't been an an actor, uh, a space that's been seen to have credibility on these issues. Uh, So what, what normally happens is a community is affected by Canadian companies, it suffers harm. It raises those issues. Canadian civil society actors try to amplify the voices of those communities and affected individuals in Canada, tell their stories, bring the information to decision makers. Companies refute the allegations, deny them or explain them away. And so we have a, a, a he said, she said situation where where it's difficult to know who's right. I mean, in some cases, there have been um, international uh, actors, authorities, UN agencies who have chimed in and who have supported communities' claims and civil society allegations. But in many cases, uh, I think it would be difficult for um, the Canadian public to make an informed uh, decision about what's really happening. And so now with an ombudsperson, there will be a space, there will be an office and a process that will be charged with receiving those complaints, receiving those allegations, receiving testimony and documents about allegations of wrongdoing, and whose mandate will be to take a measured, careful look 
to investigate those allegations, to hear from companies also and receive their opinions and their their information, and then to come to conclusions about what's really happening and to and to issue those those conclusions publicly to put them into the public domain. So I think for the first time, we'll have an actor that's credible and independent making determinations about these cases, and and that I hope will be a game changer. That wasn't it. That was an excerpt of my conversation with Karen Kinnan, and she's director of Above Ground. It's a Canadian NGO that works to uh, make sure that Canadian companies operating overseas respect human rights. And what she also says it's very interesting is that for uh, it's it would be very important for this new ombudsperson, we don't know whether it's going to be a woman or a man, uh, to be able to compel companies to participate in the process. And this is something that wasn't possible under the previous system, where mm-hmm. companies just could ignore and not show up uh, at these hearings, and um, there's nothing uh, that could have been done. But we don't know if that's going to be the case as yet, is it? Well, I think the indications are that the government is pretty serious in terms of uh, setting up something that is more or less uh, credible. What they could do is frighten the company, say, either you show up or we'll sick the tax department on you. <laughs> that's enough to scare most people into compliance, right? Well, <laughs> think of it. Especially since probably a lot of these companies have um, offshore accounts and uh, Let's say interesting, uh, interesting, interesting financial, fi- financial uh, uh, systems. <laughs> Lynn, what was one of the stories that caught your attention this week? Um, I just posted an interview with Dr. Robin Lennox. As she says, a quarter or more of Canadians are reporting persistent loneliness. And she says there are health risks associated with that, including higher rates of death, Uh, Cognitive decline, depression, anxiety, substance use, addiction, as well as more difficulty controlling issues such as high blood pressure and diabetes. And part of this might be because apparently, according to government statistics from 2016, 28% of of Canadian households are single-person households, which is kind of amazing. Hmm. Didn't the UK government just announce the creation of a loneliness minister? Yeah, they've got a a a loneliness minister. They just appointed a loneliness minister, and I asked uh, this doctor whether we should do that. She says, well, let's wait and see how it goes in England, what kind of money they have, what kinds of things they do before we say it might be good for Canada. I guess there are certain songs you shouldn't be playing as the theme song for that. <laughs> I'm Mr. Lonely. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. LeVon, what about you? Well, uh, for me, the big story this week was the Vancouver summit on what to do with North Korea and its nuclear and ballistic missiles program. It was co-chaired and co-hosted by Canada and the United States. It was a, a rather strange summit in a way that uh, it gathered countries that were original sending states to the UN command in the 1950-1953 Korean War. But Russia and China, who were on the other side of the war in 1950-53, weren't invited. This is despite the fact that Russia and China are two countries that share um, an actual land border with uh, North Korea and are among a very short list of countries that still have some influence with uh, the regime in Pyongyang. And not surprising, they weren't very happy about being left out of the main meeting and being invited to be debriefed only um, at the end of the uh, the summit, uh, denounced in very, very sharp terms uh, Canada's position. The other interesting uh, dynamic of the summit was that there was a 
you know, noticeable warming of relations between South and North Korea ahead of the uh, Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang. So this would be a very interesting story to look, uh, you know, follow in the in this coming days. All right. Now, we, one of the things we don't often think about is taking a look at the other aspects of uh, stories and things that are on our website. Uh, Marie Claude, it's time for you just to give us a, just a quick look at uh, maybe one of the things that people can see on our site that they may not normally notice. Sure. Well, um, one of the big news we have, though, um, is that next week, starting next week, you can watch the show live right on our homepage. So people who are now watching on Facebook... Or YouTube will be able to go on our website, which is um, RCINet. RCINet.ca. Right. All right. So right on the front page, you'll be able, um, right on top of the big square here, there will be another square with our show. Uh, Friday at one uh, fifteen. We'll keep our fingers so, crossed for that. Yeah, no, I think it will happen. <laughs> We've had some technical yes. difficulties today. And once you're on our website, well, there's a lot of sections you can visit. Uh, let me show you one. So at the top, you see home highlights, in depth, and discovering Canada. So for those who feel like they should know, they want to know more about the geography, um, the politics, the people. Uh, that's a that's a nice section actually to visit even for people who know Canada pretty well. Okay, um, by car, by boat, by plane, by train, yeah. by foot from space. There you go. <laughs> all right, <laughs> Marie Claude Simard, thank you very much for that. That's just about all the time You're we welcome. have for the show for today. Surprising how this time flies, eh? I mean, it was just yesterday I was 22. That's how ta- that's how <laughs> fast time flies. <laughs> And your kids were in diapers, and now they're driving your car, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so now we're going to have to say goodbye for this week. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, those on Facebook Live, I, is this the right camera? Yep. It okay. Is. Do we have one camera or two? We have two, but mm, that's our main one. Okay, that's the main one. Okay, so <laughs> that's the camera. Thank you for joining us this week for Lynn and for Levon and for me, Claude, and for Alex Leclerc in the uh, control room there. Thank you very much for joining us. Until next week, do take care. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.